Hello and welcome back to the Miss Amanda Chen Show. We're kicking off season three of the 100 Mass Men series this week, where I anonymously interview different men from all around the world that challenge gender roles and expectations in the modern world today. This week is all about challenges, so let's challenge some judgments about alcoholism and sobriety. Are sober people doomed to be boring people? Masked man number 53 is the Cali Sober. We really connected on this topic of alcoholism, how it started out all fun and games and then went really dark really fast. And the journey to sobriety, to interacting with people again as this new version of yourself and how that can look like in dating and in sex. I honestly didn't think I would find anyone who could relate with me and my unique struggle of having sex sober. And I really enjoyed his open approach to this allowing more space for each individual to pave their own path to recovery. I hope you enjoy the show. All right. Um, I was actually born on the east coast of Canada on an island called Newfoundland and Labrador. Well, the island is Newfoundland, but it's part of Newfoundland and Labrador is the name of the province. I grew up there. I was there until I was 18. My parents are still together and they have been my whole life. And I also have a sister, a younger sister. She's 25 now, but she, we're four years different. So we're really, really close. Growing up, I was obviously, I was in the closet until I was 18. I came out when I was 18 and moved away a week later. <laughs> hey, I'm gay, bye. But yeah, I moved to Nova Scotia to do my college. And that's where I spent two years after I moved away. Yeah, growing up, I mean, my life was, was great. My, my parents were amazing. I was always getting into trouble. <laughs> okay. I was I was a little bit of a, a rebel. Um, I started uh, drinking and partying and all that fun stuff when I was really young. Because on the East Coast, there is like a drinking culture. And I mm. think I, I grew up around that. And it was like normal to start drinking at 13. Everybody that I went to school with started drinking when they were like 12, 13. So it was kind of the norm. Um, so that's where it all kind of kind of started I also started like uh you know binge drinking at that age too like like I think the first time I ever like blacked out I was like 14 <laughs> so um it started really young with me and it carried through with me all the way until I was 25 but when it comes to my like upbringing and my and, my, and the way I was raised it was it was pretty by the book my family super close I have no complaints about it and I think that's a misconception too like with people who have struggled with alcohol and drugs that there's always some sort of like childhood trauma to you know behind that and that's not the case with me so it kind of like started when I was older the trauma um, mm. when I got out on my own that's when everything kind of started getting bad if you will but it my drinking started young <laughs> so it happened okay. when I was 13 but that's that was normal like I said that was like you know the norm so if that was the norm, did your parents know that you drank and it was just ex acceptable? Like, did they drink with you? It was just like an okay thing at that young age? Definitely not at that age. They were against it and I got grounded all the time. <laughs> so I was <laughs> okay. like, it was like every second weekend I was grounded and then the next weekend I was out drinking again. But, you know, like it was accepted at the time. Like they knew, mm -hmm. obviously, because I would get caught. They didn't like allow it or they didn't want to know about it until I was 17. At 17 was probably the age where it was like, okay, you know what, kids will be kids. But from like 13 to 17, I had to hide it and I would get in trouble for it. But once I got into, you know, second year of high school, it was like, okay. Um, they wouldn't <laughs> let anybody drink 
in the house or me drink in front of them until I was 19. Mm, okay. So how did you get around to drinking? Cause you like 13 is so underage, right? Like 15 is already so underage. So at that like super young age, how did you get access to alcohol? Good question. A lot of my friends had older siblings. So people that were like in third year high school and then like it was normal. Another normal thing was like you get a fake ID in high school. <laughs> so I had one in grade 10, but our older brothers and sisters, I didn't have any older brothers and sisters. But my friends did. Um, so they would pick it up for us, which looking back on it is so bad. <laughs> like I would <laughs> never do that. But I mean, again, it was the way it's like the way the culture is there. And it was just accepted. Very, mm. very bizarre. So I guess now looking back as an adult and looking at that community, is alcoholism just like a big thing there? Like all adults just hang out and drink together. Like it's just a thing that happens on the East Coast. I would say, yeah. I mean, it's a huge part of the culture there, you know, kitchen parties and George Street in St. John's is is huge. It's like the most bars per capita in North America. So it's a it's a travel destination for a lot of people to go and party. And I grew up around that. So uh, yeah, I would say that's definitely normal. And I think alcoholism, and there's also a huge opiate crisis out there as well. It's, it's, it's rampant. So if, if that's kind of just like the acceptable norm, is that what everyone does? It's like, hey, what are you doing Friday night? Let's all go for a drink. That's just the general first thing that anyone's going to ask, or that's the first way that you'll hang out with anyone. And then you'll make plans additionally after that but it always starts with a drink or is involving a drink yeah definitely I think so I'll tell you like how I got sober because I think I think that's important to state with my next statement <laughs> so okay. um, I was in Toronto when I kind of hit my rock bottom and then I moved home to Newfoundland kind of lost everything at once and I moved back home I moved there with the intent to get sober but it ended up going the opposite way. And I got like 10 times worse when I got there. Mm -hmm. And it was because it was just like such a normal thing there. And it was all anybody wanted to do. You know, it's, it's not normal to be sober there. I'll just say it. It's not, there's more of a stigma there than anywhere else that I've, you know, encountered on the East coast. It's, it's kind of not as well known as it is here in Mm -hmm. Toronto. So yeah, I think that basically everyone's social life there revolves around going out for drinks. And, you know, it's not, I'm not saying that everybody there has a problem with drinking. I'm not saying that at all, but I am saying that the, that the culture there definitely drinking is a huge part of that. And it's a big part of, you know, the things to do. There's not much else to really do there. There's not much in terms of like recreational activities. Yeah. The the last time I was in a community like that, I was, uh, I was living in England in London and just pub culture, right? Like Totally. It, it's uh, it was just a thing that you did and it was normalized. So there wasn't anything wrong with it. But obviously, like people can take it to a different level, but that's anything with uh, an abundance of access to that. Right. So why, why did you think that going home was going to help you get sober? Did you just not think that uh, that community was was so big on drinking? Did you just not think about it that way? Good question. I think I was desperate. I really didn't have anywhere else to go. I was young. I mean, like my first bottom happened when I was like 23. So my instinct was to go home and to, to go with my family. And my family were so, so supportive of me coming home. And, you know, they couldn't control me, which was, which was tough. So they knew I had a problem. Mm-hmm. And they tried to get me on that track to, to sobriety. 
and they tried to get me to go to meetings and stuff, but I just wasn't having it. I guess like when I got there, I kind of eased into it. And then next thing you know, I was right back where I was and I was kind of going even like harder, but my parents didn't see that. My family didn't see me doing it, but they saw me the next day and it wasn't pretty sight. So like they knew I had a problem and they were always encouraging me to get help. But one thing that I'll say about people who do struggle with alcohol or drugs is that, you know, people can guide you as much as they want, but you're never going to do it unless you want to, you know, you got to want it for yourself. And the only way that I registered that was when I hit like really bad bottom Mm -hmm. and that happened. And next thing you know, I was in AA trying, (laughs) Um, but you know, I, like I relapsed like eight times before it actually stuck. So it's it's not as easy as it seems. It's kind of, you know, you got to dip your toe in. Well, for me, I had to dip my toe in a few times before it actually stuck. So can I ask you how how that happened where you, you hit that extreme low? Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions on alcoholism. I think people just make fun of alcoholism or make jokes out of it saying like, oh, I'm an alcoholic, but really they're not. They're just an alcohol enthusiast maybe. Mm-hmm. At, at the most and then there's just that one judgment of alcoholism of like oh you're an alcoholic if you drink by yourself but you know th- that's difficult because people can eat meals by themselves now you know it's it's not the same context as I think it oh, used Lord. to be or where that quote came from so how was that journey for you when when did you start taking it to the next level to the next level to the next level to the point where you're like oh shit I'm like at a point of no return yeah. Um, okay. So, so there's many things that you just said that I like, I totally agree with. Like, you know, people like it's becoming more normal for people to do things on their own. So like mm-hmm. good example is lots of moms have a glass of wine after they put their kids to bed and they're not an yeah. alcoholic and they're by themselves. That's a fair assessment to say that, you know, if you drink by yourself, you're an alcoholic. Yeah. But for me, I would stay out after the party was over. Mm-hmm. I would get so obliterated that I just didn't even like know where I was. I was a complete mess on all levels doing things that I would never do sober. Mm. I would go missing for days at a time. So I would just like ignore my, my calls and just go on a complete bender with strangers. I didn't have an off switch. That's like one thing that I say all the time is I just did not know when to shut it off. I was the first to arrive at a party and the last to leave. And I would normally... Like, you know, there were days that I was up for like three and four days straight. That's a problem. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's no longer a social thing when you are abusing it and like truly hurting yourself. And I think another big thing that I, I, I'll say is that when I went home to get sober, I was really depressed because I had to leave my life in Toronto. I mm-hmm. felt like a failure. And I got there and I really didn't have a drive anymore. So I was drinking for the wrong reasons. I wasn't drinking to have fun anymore. I was drinking to get messed up and take away that pain that I was feeling as well. So when you're drinking for the wrong reasons, it just, it's a whole different ball game. So yeah, I mean, I always, I always describe it as it was so much fun for like the first, whatever, how many years, like five years. And then it got really, really dark, really, really fast. So where where was that tipping point in your relationships that you mentioned? Like, was it a person that brought that out of you? Were you like, oh, shit, like this, this has gone too far. I've hurt people now. Or did you hurt yourself? And then you were like, oh, shit, like I need to stop hurting myself. Both, you know, 
I ruined my relationship because I was getting so drunk and, and messed up that I would do things that I wouldn't remember. And then eventually people, you know, there's only so many times you can forgive somebody. Mm-hmm. And I wore out my chances and I, I kind of just, it was a re I was a repeat offender. You know, I kept doing it over and over and over again. My family was starting to see me as a completely different person. And then, yeah, I did hurt myself. I got to a really, really dark place. And um, at the very end of my active addiction, I, I did try to take my own life. And it was because I was so disappointed in myself. And I was so, I hated myself is the only way that I can really explain it was I could only see myself as a mess up. And, you know, I would, I would drink so much. It's almost like I was doing it to see how far I could go before dying. And then, you know, the time that I'm talking about, I was coming down off of like a bunch of drugs. So I was not my, in my right state of mind. And I, I would never have done it if I was sober. But because I had so much shame about what I did the night before and how I had kept repeating this over and over and over again, I honestly just didn't see a way out. I did not see a way out. I did not see a way from to get better. So the answer I had for myself was just to just end it and just get it over with. Luckily, I, uh, I didn't die. <laughs> but, you know, this is how powerful addiction and alcohol is. Even though I did that, I still went back out a couple of weeks later and, and got messed up again. So even though I hit like the ultimate bottom, it still didn't register. I think I went out maybe like two or three more times after that before I actually started to do the work and it stuck. Do you have a story of what exactly you did that hurt yourself that you were like, you know what, this, this is enough for me. Like I can't, I can't keep, keep going because it's, it's one thing if you, you've characterized yourself. Like I, I used to love drunk Amanda, whatever drunk Amanda would do, had all the fun, got to do all these things. And now I wish sober Amanda could be drunk. Amanda could have that kind of confidence and, and be that fun person. And then I would hurt people all the time, but then I just blame it on drunk Amanda as of, you know, that's just an alter ego that I had. But I think when I realized how much I was hurting myself, my, my issues came, came with sexual abuse, right? It was kind of like sexual violence while drunk is what offend, what kind of like did it for me when I was in, in unsafe situations where, you know, I was, I was seriously um, putting myself at risk by someone else being able to put me at risk versus myself. If it's your own doing, technically you have enough control or at least you're, you're the one in the driver's seat of how much you're going to hurt yourself. But if you put yourself in a space where someone else can hurt you, suddenly that changes everything. So that was, that was a wake up call for me. But on, on your end, since it was always you and your causing, like when, when was that breaking point for you where you're just like, enough, I'm not going to hurt myself anymore because I think that takes way more self-control than the version that I was in. Yeah, I mean, like the day that I decided that I was going to get sober, it, like the best way to explain it was like a light bulb went off in my head. It was, a, again, I was coming down from a really, really crazy binge. It was like three or four days long. Again, I was with strangers who were not my friends. And I had, you know, I was doing literally everything that was put in front of me. You know, I was doing drugs that I hadn't even heard of. And when I finally was starting to come down, I truly thought I was going to die. I remember having the thought like, okay, this may be my last day. And it felt like my heart was going to like explode out of my chest. And 
it was like a moment that I remember so clearly. And I just said to myself, you are better than this. You're like, you need to get your shit together because one day you're not going to wake up. And I think I just had like a realization that I had worth, you know, I was worth something and that I didn't have to do this to myself. This is all my choice. This is all me. You know, I, I can blame other people. I can blame other things. But at the end of the day, it's me. And it was honestly like a conversation with myself. And I never had a drink since. I didn't have a drink since. Wow. When when was that? Because you, you said that you kind of went up and down a couple of times. You relapsed about like eight times. So when, when was that final tipping point for you? And it was um, May 25th, 2016. So I had started going to AA and trying for like a year and a half before that. So within that year and a half was when I had all my relapses. And then on May 25th, 2016 is when I, is my sober date. So it'll be five years this May. Wow. That's amazing. What would you say worked slash didn't work of when you were trying? If you, if you reflect on it back and be like, you know what? Going to group sessions was great or talking to people was great or wasn't great. Like what worked and what didn't work in your opinion? Okay. So I'll always say going to AA and NA was a great start. You know, it got me on the right path and it did help. You know, that community really, really helped. What doesn't work for me or what didn't work for me. There's a lot of like God talk in AA and NA. So I had a really hard time like grasping that and getting past that. But once I did and kind of just like put that to the side, like, okay, whatever, I'm not going to call it God. I'm not going to call it anything. I'm going to come to these rooms just to hear other people's experiences. Once I looked past all of that stuff, it started to make sense to me. And I started to relate to other people. And I mean, and it, I was so young too. Like the biggest thing for me was I didn't want to admit and, and like, I didn't want to accept that I couldn't ever drink again. Like that was so, such a hard pill for me to swallow because I would just start thinking about it and be like, Oh God, I'm only 25 and I can never have a drink again. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Like where, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? But once I started and I, and I got like maybe like six months to a year in, I started realizing like, okay, okay, this is fine. Like, I don't need it. Like I, I can still have fun to an extent. I'm never going to get like messed up and, you know, go to a rave. Well, actually that's a lie. I've been to a rave. <laughs> so, you know, it was, it seemed like it was so far out of left field if I were to stay sober. And I really, really related sobriety to boringness as yeah. well. Again, it comes down to stigma. And like, I was judgmental about sobriety. I didn't want to be that boring guy but once I started like doing it and like understanding the benefits of sobriety I changed my like my mindset and and now the reason why I speak about it is because I don't want people to think that they have to be boring just because they're sober (laughs) yeah I I think that's so weird that stigma of like oh you're not gonna have a drink it's like I, I, it's a choice. Like it has nothing to do with my personality if I drink or don't drink. I mean, I come from the bartending space. So when I'm behind the bar, I'm obviously sober and I'm just watching everyone else get drunk. And it's it's just so funny to to watch and witness the progression as, as it goes on. And then, you know, whenever people ask if I'll have a drink with them, and it's like, I can't because I'm obviously working. It's not like you'd ever offer a drink to the cashier in a, in a right, store, exactly. right? But suddenly I'm I'm no longer a cool bartender just because I said no. And I just generally should say no because I'm working. 
so yeah, it, it's it's this kind of like, oh, you're not cool anymore. You're not fun anymore. Why do you think that that came from, like that originated from? Um, and how would you kind of navigate around that now? Because I'm sure you must encounter this all the time when, when you meet anyone new or anyone old and they're just like, you want to go for a drink? It's, it's, a, it's an art form <laughs> is, what I, is all I can really say. You know, I've, I've gotten to, I've gotten so used to saying it now. And I think the biggest piece of advice that I have for anybody that's like had that conversation is to just make it normal. I stand by it. I tell the truth from the beginning. Like, listen, man, I struggled. I had a hard time in my early 20s. I used to be the life of the party. I was lots of fun, but that person had to go because, I mean, I would not be anywhere moderate, like nowhere close to the person that I am today if I were still drinking. So much has changed in my life since, I, since I've gotten sober and all for the better. So the minute anyone starts to question me about it, I don't get defensive, but I'll just tell them how it is. You know, like I stand by it. I am proud of it. It's something that I am like super, super open about. And I think the more confidence that you have in yourself and sobriety, the easier it is for other people to understand. I don't judge people when they judge me. Yeah. So if someone gives me like a shitty answer, I ask them like, why? Why does it matter to you? Like, please tell me. And I I think it's interesting when people judge, it's obviously a projection on their part. And I think like, it was really interesting when, I mean, so many bartenders try to become sober, obviously, like when they've just had enough. So anyone that's like, oh, I'm, I'm whatever day sober, there's, there's all this judgment from, from the other bartenders. And it's like a running joke to get them to get back into drinking, you know, to say like, no, that's not the real you. Like you're just sober for today. And you know, let's, let's test you. Let's see how committed you are to being sober. And I think that is so dangerous. Like, why would you go wrong? Yeah. Why would you want to do that? So have you experienced that? Did you have peers that were just like, Oh, we don't believe in you. We're, we're going to, we want you to stay at the low level that you are so that we can all be in our low levels of hating ourselves. You know, I'm pretty sure there's people that, you know, are still miserable that misery wants company. Right. So they, they would want to pull you in. Did you have friends like that, that you had to let go? It didn't, it wasn't, I don't think it was as bad as that, but yes, I did have to like shuffle around my friendships mainly because I was triggered by people and it sucks, but I I did have to like let some people go just because anytime that I was with them, it would like bring up really shitty memories and almost like temptation. So I had to do that at the beginning. And then I'd say a couple of years into my sobriety, I had a friend that just kind of like went off on me, kind of just being like, oh, you think you're so much better than other people, blah, 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 like playing that card. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I just shut it down. I was just like, I don't have time for this, man. Like, (laughs) I cannot play this game. Like, if you need help, I'm here, but I'm not going to like defend my sobriety to you while you're sitting there like hammered. I'm just not doing it. So I think, yes, the, the short answer is yes. Um, I do really try to be patient with people when they give me a reaction that I'm not expecting. But another thing that I've learned to do is just accept it. You know, not everybody's going to be cool. Like, it's Mm -hmm. just just a a matter of life. Like, not everybody's going to understand. And if they don't understand, then that's on them. It's not on me. You know, like, I'm fine. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky to navigate sometimes. Like, dating is a whole different ballgame now. Because it's one thing to tell a friend or like an acquaintance and like, they're like, oh yeah, that's cool, man. No problem. But when it comes to dating somebody who's sober, it's, a, it's, that's the word I'm looking for. It can be a little bit like 
scary, I guess, for people, because then they think that they have to be sober by association, but that's not the case. You know, I go out to clubs, you know, I go to parties all the time. I'm totally chill around everything. But I think people's automatic like thought when they meet somebody who's sober is like, oh God, I gotta be like super censored and they they might judge me or um, they're gonna be no fun or like, how are we gonna go to a wedding? Or like, you know, all those things start flooding into their head Mm -hmm. before even like, (laughs) getting to a point where it's even a possibility. Yeah. I think that's interesting. Like when I decided to go sober, I was, it was mainly for fear. I was so afraid of drinking in front of someone that I've just met. If I was going to go on a date with someone, because I realized how much non-consensual sex I've had because I've just always been drunk, that there was just no way that I could know how to exercise consent if I was not in the right mind. So I was just afraid to be that vulnerable in front of somebody again. And that's how I would explain that every time I go on any first date to say like, I don't trust you yet. So I can't, I can't drink in front of you or I won't drink in front of you. I think I remember talking to someone and I was like, what are your deal breakers? And I said, I I probably don't think I can date someone that's, you know, that has alcoholism in, in as, as something that he's battling because I don't, I don't think I can encounter that all over again. And I'm saying this while this guy's like drinking a beer. But it's kind of like, I'm not saying that you are alcoholic. I'm just saying like, if this goes that far, then if I have feelings for you, then it's, it's going to be too much. I'm, I'm going to be just committed to that. And I, I, don't, I don't think I, I would want to walk into that knowing if that was something that you were already struggling with. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't know you well enough. I wouldn't enter that relationship being aware of that. And I think, uh, I don't know, like so, someone like you that has gone through it, right? And, and you're talking to someone that's never gone through it, and they're just casually having a beer with you. How rocky has those conversations been like for you in terms of like getting them to understand what you're trying to say and not blaming them for anything and also trying to let them live their own life their own way? Because it's that's not the point. It's just like where your boundaries are, right? Totally. Honestly, um, I've been single the whole time I've been sober. So I, we can start wow. there. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. <laughs> I think there was a lot. At first, it was a lot of like getting used to myself before I could really start dating. And then sex is a whole other topic I could not have sex for like the first two years of my sobriety I just could not have sex sober so that took a lot of like patience and getting to understand myself and my body because basically every other time that I've ever had sex I was drunk or high you know but going on dates and stuff like it definitely took practice um you know Mm -hmm. having that speech and like letting them know where I'm at with it but I also uh, struggled because I was like still really attracted to the bad guy to like the to the bad dude like the bad guy like, okay bad boy behavior if you will yeah <laughs> because I was always really attracted to other party animals because like I was a party animal so I knew I could get away with it and then even when I got sober I was still attracted to that type of person even though it was like such a bad match for me yeah it took a lot of trial and error before I realized got to start looking for a completely different type of person before anything's going to work so that's only like recent. That's only like last two, like year, year and a half that I've started like actually like refining my search for yeah. the perfect guy. Because yeah, I was so stuck in that old habit. I really found like the bad, bad boy cute. <laughs> and I, and I, it took a while to break out of that. But I mean, it's, I'm still learning so much about dating sober. It's getting easier, but it, they're still, especially being gay too, like so, sober, as a man, as a gay man, like there's so many layers there because, you know, a lot of the, the gay culture is party, 
you know, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of uh, barriers to break down. But I find as I get older, it's becoming easier and easier because now, like in my 30s, a lot of the people who were party boys in their 20s are starting to like settle down. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's definitely a maturity for sure. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. I think I think that's interesting because having sex sober, if you've never had sex sober, is terrifying. Terrifying. So awkward. Um, you're you're just too aware of everything and it makes you realize like, wow, I haven't really experienced sex because I was always just not there, you know? Mm -hmm. And then and then you almost like forget how to have sex. Like you don't know what sex even was anymore because you were so you're just so aware of how non-existent you were during that time so how was how was your process and like opening up to that type of intimacy with someone you being completely sober and aware of yourself mm-hmm. it didn't come easy I'll tell you that like it did not mm-hmm. come easy I had I struggled really really bad at first I ended up like I had to and even now like I, I need to trust the other person before mm-hmm. I can I can have sex with them like there's no random sex for me anymore it just does not happen because I need to have that level of like intimacy as well as like, you know, I need to know their name. <laughs> I like normally yeah. I, like I like to sit down and like have a conversation with them first. Whereas before I would just like jump into bed because I was messed up and I would just do whatever. Mm-hmm. But now there's so much more, there's so much more of a meaning to sex to me than I, I used to have. Like I used to be very, I wouldn't say, yeah, I mean, I was promiscuous <laughs> in my twenty, in my early twenties for sure. I didn't really have standards, but now I do. You know, I like I don't just jump into bed with somebody. I need to like get to know them first, and now I like it again. Like I, I like I know how to do it now. <laughs> You're right though. It was like I completely forgot how to have sex, and yeah. it was it was like I had to relearn it. I felt like it was. 17 again you know like I had to go through that whole process of getting to know myself sexually because I had changed so much yeah I I felt like everything that I was feeling all over again was like oh this is not cute I thought this was (laughs) you know like and then whatever version of you when you were on something you're just like oh man that's like sex feels so much better like that like it everything felt not boring but just like vanilla like it just didn't feel as exciting until you realize that that was just an elevated version of whatever you thought you were actually experiencing. And then that act, that kind of sex doesn't actually exist. Totally. And then when you do have sex off of it, mm-hmm. it's almost like a letdown. Yeah. You know, so like I had a hard time like getting back into it and starting to enjoy it again because, you know, I was always on like some sort of like MDMA or something that would really like heighten my senses in that sense. So yeah, you're totally right. It, it didn't, it was almost like confusing because I didn't know how it was supposed to feel. Yeah. I I just, I felt super awkward just trying to communicate and I'm sober. I should be able to communicate better than when I'm drunk, you know, and it's kind of weird that you rely on your, your physical body language when, when you're, when you're on things. And then when you're not, you're like, Oh, what are my words? I don't have any anymore. And you don't know (laughs) how to articulate anything. And yeah, it, it was it was very cool to kind of like relearn yourself. But it's also terrifying, I think, to to trust somebody because I don't think you've ever trusted someone with your body in that same way because before you kind of discarded your body, you detached yourself from that body. So it was no one's body. At least that's how I kind of thought of it. 
you're so right. Like I like my my body is and and me and my, just like my person. It's so important to me now. Um, and it's almost you know like I don't just give it away. It's really hard to explain, but like I just didn't care about much. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Whereas now, like I care about everything a little bit too much. Like I, I overthink everything. So yeah, it's it's a great point. Like I like I completely discarded my body and I discarded my mind. I didn't care, but now I do. And I and like I think about all of those things now before I jump into bed with somebody. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting to see how much you gave away yourself and gave that power to other people without them even realizing and you literally just chose anyone off the street like oh you'll do you know um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To, to show how little self-respect you had for yourself right and I think that that was the biggest shame of just like oh man like here I'm trying to talk about self-respect in in the workforce or you know whatever I'm trying to get to in life and then I'm, I'm disrespecting my body so much to this level that like you know I'm so worthless why do I even bother so how did you kind of juggle around those those feelings because you're obviously you know rising up in in maturity of whatever you're trying to get in life and then also you know bringing yourself back down when when you engage in these kind of toxic relationships that's self-fulfilling that you've done to yourself great question again that's a tough one I think I had to look inward for a long time and really figure myself out because I didn't know myself at all when I first got sober everything that I thought I was was no longer because I built myself up to be this party boy. I built myself up to be the life of the party. Everything in my life was like around the party. So it's almost like I was like completely reborn. (laughs) It's the only way I can really describe it. Like all of that had to go, right? So I knew that all of those, the standards that I held myself to had to go. So I had to start from the bottom and work work myself up again. And that didn't happen overnight. That took years, years, and a lot of work from within. Like I had to seriously evaluate everything. And I had to discard a lot of things and I had to start new things. And I did a lot of trial and error, what was working for me, what wasn't. And it's only now, and I mean now, like this year, um, that I feel like I'm at a place that I know who I am now. Mm-hmm. I thought I knew myself from when I was like 19 on, yeah. but I didn't <laughs> because yeah. so many of those things were just so centered around what I had built up uh, that just like revolved around this party. It's so, it's so crazy how much you can self-identify with circumstances. Like you're circumstantially this person versus like, who am I in general? Like you don't really spend that time to, to unpack that. And I think it's, it's hard to disconnect yourself when you're saying like, oh, this person has to go. I mean, that person's never going to leave you, right? Like that that person's going to hover around you. Um, you can peel off certain types of layers, but there's there's still fun you in there. It's just going to be a different type of fun you, right? So I know we we kind of got into this in terms of like the judgment that you will receive from from peers, but let's talk about the judgment you'll receive from the sober community in terms of like being 100% clean, you know, not fun, boring, all of these conceptions of what it is to be sober. Um, and how do you how do you find the right blend for you? Because I think even in my own journey, I'll I'm 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 not I'm not going to say I'm fully sober. I'm still going to have a drink, but I'm very 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 careful on how I do that. But I can get judgment on both sides for that. For do you have to be rigorously one thing and not the other? Because then how is that? How does that give anyone room for growth? 
because that's the exact same thing as like, oh, if you're going to be a party boy, you got to do X, Y, and Z. If you don't want to be a party boy, then you do ABC. And again, you're, you're put back into another box regardless. Okay. I love talking about this because it's something that I talk about all the time. So I'm what you would call Cali sober and it's starting to get a little bit more light now. And I don't know if you've seen Demi Lovato's amazing documentary that she's been putting out over the last couple of weeks, but Demi Lovato is also Cali sober and she's actually receiving a lot of backlash right now on, mm. uh, from like news outlets and stuff like that. But Cali sober means that you're sober from all alcohol and like hard drugs, but you know, you still use a little bit of cannabis. And I will say that it worked for me. I have used cannabis throughout my entire recovery. And I think more and more people are starting to identify with that because, you know, AA and NA and all of the 12 step programs are so, so old and they are very black and white. It's cut and paste. It's one way or the highway. <laughs> And I think, you know, as more and more people are starting to become sober curious and, you know, start wanting to take care of themselves, not just because maybe they're an alcoholic or they're an addict, but because they just want to make a lifestyle change or because something happened to them and they just no longer want to drink anymore. It's not just about being an addict or an alcoholic. So, you know, I... I'm a firm believer that it's not cut and paste and that it's not black and white and that there is a gray area because without cannabis, I probably would have relapsed and I probably would have been like, I, I probably would be dead. Like, honestly, because I would just keep going with the Coke and the Coke was like my devil, <laughs> but you know, cannabis helped me with my anxiety. It helped me stay home because it kind of just like gives you that chill vibe. It's helped me socialize and it's helped me keep a little bit of an edge to my personality. And I know that sounds silly, yeah. but there's this perception of a sober person that we've already spoken about that's boring. That is, you know, they can't do anything because they're sober. Mm -hmm. You know, my issue was with alcohol and cocaine. Yeah. Uh, cannabis is absolutely nothing close to either of those. So I don't know. It's, it's something that I have faced some backlash from like within the sober community. But then again, I'm discovering a whole other community now that is the Cali sober community. And I think, you know, the more people talk about it and the more people who come forward that are Cali sober, and there's so many people out there that are Cali sober, the less stigma there will be around that because now there's like, you're right. You get the the judgment from the sober community as well as the non-sober community it's like come on guys we're like we're all in this together like give me a break but yeah i mean i used uh na and aa at the very beginning of my sobriety and and you know up until like my fourth year mm -hmm. i moved away from that because yes there was some backlash again there's some things about that program that i just don't self-identify with mostly around you know the god talk again it's just this judgmental thing that that I just didn't want to be a part of so I started you know working my own program I talked to other people who are in recovery it's all about community for me you know it's not just the sober community that I talk to I talk to everybody about being sober and Cali sober and what that looks like for other people and what that looks like for me because it is so different for everybody and I and I'm really just like against this like cut and paste black and white because it's just not the case I had no idea how Puritan the sober space was that, you know, it, it would be so strict because then how, how, I don't even know if half of the people 
people would make it that way because only like the extreme versions, like the super militant, diligent people that are very disciplined and, you know, probably rich enough to afford enough support on that sense would get there. You know what I mean? It's a very privileged space. I totally agree with you. And I think that's another thing. People are so intimidated by this because of this complete abstinence space. You know, like you have to be, Mm. you have to abstain from every single mind altering substance. I'm on anti-anxiety medication. I'm on antidepressants. I need those things in order to function. You know, like you're going to tell me that I can't have an Ativan when I'm having a panic attack. It's just, it just doesn't seem fair to me. And I just don't get it. It, like yeah. I kind of got to a point where I was just like, like, no, but I will say this for some people, it is that way. For some people, you just can't dabble in anything. But again, I think addiction is a spectrum. I think that for some people, they just can't have anything mind altering, but for other people, they can have a drink and they mm-hmm. can, they can be fine. It's not one way or the other. One thing I will say though, is that the program, it does work. If you abstain, from everything completely, you're, you're going to get sober, but it's, it's a fine line. And it's something that I, I do have a little bit of trouble like communicating and talking about because I don't want to put somebody on the wrong path. So I think it's really, really important to, to know yourself and know your limits before making any decisions on how you're going to work your sobriety. And I, and I, I like that. I think it's, it's so interesting to see the variety of, of everyone's journeys now, because I was on this journey, but in, in more proximity to, to sex, right? So abstaining from sex and, you know, there, there are these, there's judgments on like, you know, what kind of rules you're supposed to enforce. Does that mean that you can't masturbate? Does that mean you can't do this? I mean, you can't do X, Y, and Z because all of these things would be temptations for you. And then it's just like, well, then what's the point? Cause then I think people would go backwards in the sense of like, well, then there's no fun to this version of my life. Totally. Like you just said, like, I can't drink ever again. I'm, I'm so young. There's no, no good ending. It's either I'm, I die or I, I live basically dead. You know, like, what's the point? Yeah, totally. And I think, yeah, I mean, it was so daunting to me. Like, oh my gosh, I can never drink again. But now I'm at a point where like, I don't want to, <laughs> you know, like I, I know myself now that I, I just don't ever want to drink again. And it's, it's not because it's forced on me. It's because I've gotten to this point and I've worked very hard to get to this point of understanding myself and understanding where I'm at with everything when it comes to alcohol and drugs, that I don't want it. But no one's telling me that I can't have it. Mm -hmm. You know, I made this decision. I've done the work to get here and I don't owe credit to anybody else. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that I'm not huge on AA and NA is because it's almost like you owe your sobriety and your health to that. And yes, it was a great tool and it got me, it got me started and it got me on a, on a really good path. But, you know, they say like, if you don't keep coming back, you're going to, you're going to relapse. I haven't been back in, in years and I haven't relapsed. There's just little things like that, that I just, I can't get past. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I'll always say to anybody who approaches me about getting sober is yes, go to your meetings, go to meetings, go to as many meetings as you can in your first 60 days. But once you're on a good path, I mean, it's up to you what you do. You don't have to live your life according to this book. Yeah, I think um, we we like to tell ourselves an either or story, you know, like mm-hmm. you're either this or you're either that. You're you're either sober or you're not, and it's 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 so yes or no. 
mm-hmm. versus like, why can't it be a blended story? Why can't I just be better than I was before? Right. Just a, a personal comparison of a better version of you. And that, that can be anything. Like, why does it then have to be this and not that? And yeah. like Demi Lovato was a great example. You know, she has been through hell. Like she has battled all of the demons and she spent years and years being told she had to be sober and she had to be this and she had to do this. And, you know, and then she ended up going down an even darker path and getting into heroin and meth and, and all that stuff. And that wouldn't have happened if she didn't have all the pressure on her. You know, she was six years sober before she, she relapsed. And now that she's coming out as Cali sober and it's working for her, she's getting all this backlash when she's given up heroin, <laughs> you know, like she's has, she does not use heroin anymore, which is the most addictive drug that there is, but she's getting shit for having uh, a joint. <laughs> like, I just don't yeah. get it. I do not get it. Yeah. It's like, just be happy for her. It's, it's crazy. The, the focus is on the wrong things, right? Totally. Totally. Absolutely. And like, that's like anytime that anybody judges me for using cannabis, which is very rare. I will say that. I just like say to them, like, it's better than a gram a day, better than a gram of Coke a day. So like, you know, let that set in. I just want to wrap up with um, focusing on, on judgment. And, you know, you would say that if people judge you, you're not going to judge them back. But uh, how, how do you how do you gain that grace? Because it's so easy to judge back. It's so easy to clap back and be like, OK, well, why, why do you care about me? What about you? Right. So how would you suggest um, or what has your coping mechanism been? to not let those people get to you and to also control your own judgment if you end up following in the same steps as they do. It took a lot of like practice. You know, it's really easy to start judging people who are still in that lifestyle once you've gotten out of it. But I think the biggest thing that I've taught myself is to learn to have empathy. And if I'm ever, if I ever catch myself judging somebody else, I put myself in their shoes and I reflect back to a time that I was really, really vulnerable. And I approach it from that angle. Um, and for anybody who has a problem with the way that I work my recovery, you know, I acknowledge it and I say, listen, like, I understand your frustrations, but I'm doing a real good job here. Like, I'm doing great. <laughs> so I'm not about to let your opinion of me bring me down. You know, I know myself, I know that this works for me. Um, and I would never be where I am today if I hadn't worked my recovery in this way. So, you know, normally that shuts them up, (laughs) but you know, I just stand up for myself. I stand up for my sobriety. I stand by it whenever anybody questions me about, you know, not drinking or like, why aren't you having a drink? It's just like, listen, man, you have no idea what I've been through. And I think it's really important for other people to understand that they have no idea what anybody has been through. So before placing judgment on other people, just like, you know, take a step back and, and remind yourself that you have no idea what that person has been through because everybody has a story and um, yeah, everybody's story is really, really different. Mm-hmm. And I think just practicing patience and empathy is, is the biggest thing for me. Yeah, that is, that is so beautiful to, to stand up for yourself and defend yourself with that much integrity. You know what I mean? I think we don't do that enough. I just want to ask you one last question. I know we talked about a bunch of of random things. It's like how to have sex sober, you know, uh, (laughs) different types of judgments, just kind of the the movement towards a blended understanding of 
how everyone's experiences are going to be different. So has there been any topic that jumped out at you from today's conversation that you'd like to invite another man on the show to elaborate on further? Hmm, great question. Um, I think, you know, hmm, let me think on that for a second. I would love to hear maybe another man talk about, essentially, I'd like to hear somebody who has judged uh, somebody because they didn't drink or because they didn't do X, Y, or Z, you know, and like understand that perspective because I was that person, you know, before I got sober, I would judge a sober person. But, you know, I'd like to understand like the thinking behind that and, and where that comes from. Is it, is it masculinity? Is it, is it just like society and the way we were raised? Like, what is it that, that makes sobriety seem uncool? Okay. And why did you judge at the beginning when, what was the, what was the reason for you? I think it was a little bit of both. I think it was, uh, you know, society and where I grew up, as well as, you know, this masculinity thing, because I've al- I'm already gay. <laughs> so I was just like, yeah. what can I do to toughen myself up and, and, you know, appear to be more masculine and binge drinking seemed to do the trick. <laughs> so, so that's where I think like a lot of it was rooted. Okay. This was one of my favorite interviews because of how open he was to talking about literally everything and just how much we could actually relate to and say me too for once. Usually the experiences are just so wildly different from anything I have personally experienced. So I'm just still processing the story. But uh, this was just a different feeling overall. What did you think of the three opening interviews of season three so far? Make sure to subscribe. And if you'd like to be on the show or know someone with a unique perspective, slide into my DMs at Miss Amanda Chen on Instagram. And I'll see you next Wednesday with more episodes of The 100 Masked Men.